My guest on today's episode of the A Word of Good podcast is Matt Macri-Waller, founder and CEO of Benefex and my boss for more than eight years. Matt is a global thought leader in the employee experience space, specializing in how technology can help bridge the gap between companies and its employees. Matt has helped hundreds of global organizations understand what's impacting their employee engagement and then has worked with them to design and deliver an employee experience which enables them to achieve their strategies. Matt's mission is simple. Everyone deserves to have an exceptional employee experience every day. He believes that when you look at any workplace, no one comes to work to do a bad job or to be actively disengaged. Matt's made it his personal mission to help organizations to deliver and design exceptional employee experiences, ones that enable people to get truly engaged. Matt is part of the advisory board for KPMG's Global FinTech 100 business and for Salary Finance. He's also a Barclays Entrepreneur Ambassador and Advisor. He's been nominated as a business hero by The Times and secured a place within the Reward 100 Most Influential Leaders in the Industry. Matt also has a 99% CEO approval rating on Glassdoor. I'm delighted today to welcome my boss, Matt Macriwalla. Matt, how are you? Good, thanks, you. Very good, thank you. So, um, for over a decade, Benefex has been helping some of the world's biggest brands to improve the employee experience. Um, and since its inception, you've been the CEO who has had responsibility for almost 300 people around the world. And from this vast experience, how important has well-being become to our experience at work? I think, I mean, over the, over the last 10 years, I think you've seen a big shift. I think it was a topic not massively talked about other than in specialist circles to becoming kind of, for me, something that's, I guess, one much more mainstream thanks to the likes of the princes, but also, you know, I think celebrities kind of being very willing to talk about both mental health challenges and more generally kind of well-being challenges. I also think we've slowly, and I do say slowly, kind of started to remove the stigma of being able to talk about it at work. And so I think, I guess I'm much more of a, of a believer in the fact that in life you'll have kind of these ups and downs when you kind of think about your well-being. And they could be triggered by various different things. There might be health-related ones, there might be financial ones, there might be, um, you know, you might have a spiritual crisis, you, you know, you may have a relationship breakdown, you know, there's all sorts of things that can happen. And I think, as an employer, you know, I think that it's our job and our duty to really make sure that we're uh, helping people to be as resilient as possible uh, in what life throws at them. And I, and I think, I guess, I'm more kind of an ascriber to resilience than I am necessarily to uh, you know some of the things I see around well-being in our marketplace because I think for me it's all about the impact that it can have and you know I think there are some fantastic initiatives that I've seen customers do there's some fantastic things that I've seen us do but I, I think it's just um, it's always one of wanting to have the most impact possible and some of those things require you know individuals to want to step forwards and, and make the change with you um, but I think resilience is one of those things that you can kind of help people with at any point whether it's about how they manage their energy, whether it's about how they manage kind of what they're focused on and how they focus, giving them time to kind of think about things, helping them to build better relationships internally and externally. I think those types of things for me are, uh, are very much kind of front of mind when I think about how we can help people from a well-being perspective. But there's no doubt at all that in that 10 years, we've definitely seen it come right to the top of the agenda for pretty much every customer we've talked to. Um, 
And I think it's just this general awareness and acceptance that you know, in life, lots of things happen for people that impact their well-being, and you can be a high performer one minute and have something happen to you personally the next. And that within that, you kind of need to be able to uh, adjust and adapt and, and really help that person at that moment of need, but also help them, as I said, build resilience over time. And I think what's really interesting is that that resilience piece has come out quite a few times in this podcast in that we've had people like Jeff McDonald talk about the fact that you know, lots of the help that's afforded to employees at work is at point of crisis and very little is about how do you proactively help people manage their mental health. You know, mental health is something that needs to be maintained. It's not something that it just goes bad and then you try to fix it. It's, it's steadily in keeping a level of well-being and improving that level of well-being in staff, isn't it? It's not just about that. Somebody needs help immediately, so we give that to them. Yeah, definitely. I think there's kind of a lot of uh, push the big red button, as I like to call it, which is kind of it's gone all terribly wrong and now I need some help. But I think I think there's a lot of parallels between kind of well-being in its overall sense or that kind of resilience piece and, and finances. You know, you'll have lots of different schools of people who approach money in different ways. And I think you've got, you know, you've got those people who are consciously learning, wanting to save, wanting to feel like they're kind of building up uh, a buffer um, and really giving themselves time to learn those things. And you'll have other people who, you know, either because of the circumstances they're in or the choices they've made will build up debt, kind of bury their head and, and, and hope things get better. And I think that there's a lot of parallels between kind of how people think about money, but also then how people overall think about kind of their well-being. And I think it's that... Yeah, for us, it's really about, like you said, just kind of making sure we're kind of giving people as many tools as we possibly can to kind of help them think about it as much as possible in a different way. Um, and related to that, in this podcast, we've discovered that well-being can be quite far-reaching and include things from workplace design, mental health, physical health, etc. Um, what areas of well-being do you think are standing out as being really important in the workplace at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I, I also agree with the fact that there can be so many different triggers to people's well-being. From you know, if you're an introvert and you have to come into an open plan office, to you know, uh, the fact that you know, for, for, for certain people, the fact that they can't make ends meet on a monthly basis. I think that um, you know, there's no doubt at all that mental health has kind of got the biggest light shone on it at the moment. I think, um, but for me, I think that there's a huge amount that's still unspoken around finance and that whole piece around financial well-being and I think that there are so many links between someone's kind of mental health and their financial well-being um, and their ability to you know both understand their finances their ability to take a, a knock if it happens so if you have a you know a disaster or the you know, the roof goes or you have you know car breaks down you know how many people can kind of take that, that kind of knock um, as well as then kind of you know how do you kind of move and save towards kind of goals and those kind of things over time so I think for me the standout at the moment is finance and I, I think it's because so much roots from it and it you know so much causes concern and distraction as a result of your finances not being in shape and I think you know I, I'm lucky enough to get to meet lots and lots of different people right across you know the UK and, and elsewhere in the world and I think there's a kind of unifying piece of you know, no one comes to work to do a bad job, you know, no one comes to work to be actively disengaged, we all get remunerated for the work that we do. But I think the key thing is that for me, I just want to make sure that you know, when it comes to kind of financial well-being, that people have the tools, they have the tools, they have the awareness, and that they can really start to kind of help themselves as it were. And I think that financial wellness piece I think is a kind of universal that I've seen right across the globe is that people get money for coming to work 
Uh, what they do with that is obviously in their control, but I think sometimes the circumstances people get themselves into has such far-reaching implications. So it impacts their health, it impacts their lives at home, it impacts their ability to uh, to kind of take control and do something about it. And for anyone who's been in any kind of money worries, you, you know that's all you can think about. You go to bed thinking about it, you wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it, you kind of go to, to work in the day thinking about it. And it just, it causes a level of stress and anxiety that you just can't avoid. And you can often feel incredibly trapped. And, and I don't think, <clears throat> I don't think that's unique to, to kind of low earners. You know, everyone always thinks that there's a low earner perception thing about, oh, it's just because I, I'm on a lower salary that I get kind of paid uh, 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 because I get paid less that I've got those challenges but you now I've met people who are paid considerable amounts of money and, and still in that situation um, and I think it's just you know, sometimes it's poor financial situation sometimes it's poor decisions um, but whatever it is that's gotten someone there you know I feel like it's our duty to help them get out of that. And I guess from a, a benefits perspective which is where Benefit started we've seen that you know some of those life events um, are unpredictable but also quite predictable so we know that, and we've talked about this in, in episode, other episodes of this podcast, around you know the prevalence of things like cancer and poor mental health. Mm. They are real threats facing us all that will see us take time off work if we uh, if we fall to them. Um, and those kind of benefits are you know things like income protection and pensions. They are really good proactive benefits. They are protecting you against things that inevitably we will all face. So it kind of makes sense, I think, that anyone who has an interest in reward and benefits has started to see financial well-being at work become a significant risk. Um, and I think as we discussed with Eric Porter from The Money Charity, um, you know, it's where people get paid. It's where they understand tax. It's where they already get some of these big benefits like pensions. Um, so it's really interesting that you should kind of touch upon financial well-being. Um, I also think that there's a big bit for me of it in the workplace because I think you don't have to look far and wide to see that trust in our finance system is pretty broken. Trust today in our political system is probably questionable at best. And I think, you know, you look at something like um, the Edelman Trust Barometer and you can see that trust in all of those institutions is declining, some rapidly, some slowly over time. But the really interesting thing is that trust in your employer has actually, in some instances, gone up. But it's one of those that kind of seems to remain the institution that people seem to want to turn to uh, for things where they've kind of either got you know, problem trouble or the, or the kind of needing to look at someone to trust. And so I think there's a real opportunity for employers to, I'm not saying everyone needs to kind of be mollycoddled and kind of, I'm not saying step over that line and kind of paternalistically kind of completely you know, do everything for somebody. But I am saying there are things we can all do to help someone take the right steps forward and that they can do to progress. And that I think it's our job to make sure that we're helping someone so that they are resilient when it comes to those financial knocks. Because, you know, in my experience, life is always going to throw those things at you, right? It's kind of the, the definite so that you know, life is going to throw things at you you didn't expect and it's just going to be how you deal with them. And I think that, you know, frequently money worries top the list of things that are keeping people awake at night. So even if it's not having a significant effect on their mental health, day to day it's affecting their work because frequently people are telling us that it's what they worry about most in in 2019 it's reported that money worries are more stressful to individuals than work or their relationships so that money is clearly having an impact on work and their ability to do their jobs um 
And yeah, I think that's a really good argument against why should this stuff be delivered in the workplace? Because we hear that quite a lot. You know, it's I don't want to be too paternalistic. There's still this stigma attached to money. Am I going to are my employees going to talk to me about their money situation? Um, and quite often we hear, you know, should this be taught in schools? And we'll find out in the next episode from uh, Julie Griffiths when we talk about kind of what it's like to be a teacher trying to teach this kind of stuff. But, you know, it falls down on the workplace quite a lot now, quite heavily in the, especially the reward and benefit space to do something about this because there are very little else options available to employees to get the education they need. Yeah, I wouldn't dispute that. I mean, I think if you look at... Um I have a huge amount of sympathy for school systems across the globe, but particularly in the UK and the pressures that they're under. And, you know, I think there's no doubt at all we'd all love to be in a place where schools could pick up uh, that burden that there is in terms of wanting people to learn finances from a very young age. And there's some great charities doing some great work in that space, but inevitably it's falling to parents and then subsequently it's falling largely to employers. And I think it's because you know, both of them have a significant vested interest. So. You know, from a parental point of view, you obviously want your children to have the best start, you want them to understand money, you want them to make the right kind of choices. But then from an employer point of view, you also want people to feel like they're able and capable to come to work, that they're not completely preoccupied about money and all of those kind of things as part of it. And so, you know, I think that inevitably there is, you know, yes, a desire over time for, uh, you know, people who are making policy to try and help the world understand, you know, finance better. But I think ultimately where the kind of rubber meets the road, it's going to be parents and it's going to be uh, the employer that are probably leading the charge on that. Interesting. There's lots of research coming out that looks at the fact that, you know, when kids get this kind of financial education uh, at home, um, when their parents talk to them about money, they actually leave better financial lives when they grow up, which is probably not surprising. But, you know, part of that removing that stigma starts at home with people who've got kids kind of teaching them. You know, I remember being in school the kind of only financial education I ever remember receiving is when you were kind of about seven somebody gave you those kind of plastic pennies and you had to try and work out you know work out your change and stuff like that from from very basic maths and you know one of the risks I guess we're seeing with um you know cashless society is that people don't even get that kind of education you know kids don't even get to handle money in the same way they used to so um you know, making those calculations for simple things is going to be quite quite difficult. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I also think inherently finance is a world full of jargon. Uh, you know, it wouldn't take any of us much time to throw out lots of three-letter acronyms, lots of words that require an inherent amount of understanding. And I think that that just creates this barrier for people. That means they're probably less interested in finance than they would be, you know, perhaps if it was made a little bit more uh, accessible, a little bit more fun, uh, and, and, and for me, just a little bit more kind of simplified. You know, I don't think you have to dumb it down, but I think you can explain complex concepts in a simple way, and actually that those get you to a much better outcome for people. Because I think, you know, we're, we're all human beings, and I think naturally when you have that barrier of complexity, sometimes for a lot of us it can just disengage or it can be quite disempowering. You feel perhaps, you know, I don't want to be stupid. I don't want to ask the question. I don't want to, uh, you know, feel like that person who doesn't understand. Um, and, I, and I think that, you know, we've got a job to do to get people over that. Um, it's really interesting you to say that because I think part of that trust or mistrust to financial services is obviously in part because of the way the public has perceived financial services in the UK and the US over the last couple of years, obviously um, fraught with scandals and, uh, and mistakes. Um, but also... 
Um, I think it, lots of people feel like financial services has been purposely created to be confusing so that either people don't scratch too far below the surface or that you can almost bamboozle people into uh, making the decision you need to. And Robin Powell mentioned about investing and you know he was able to bring bring his investing advice down into kind of three three things and, and listeners can listen to that episode to find out what they are but effectively you're taking this really complex scary thing that people don't understand that is investing the perception that this is a an old boys club and it's people with money when actually you know the people who've made that simple are the people who now have the apps in your pocket that allow you to make you know very small investments from just a few pence a day or a few pounds a week um, so it's clear that people are yearning for that kind of simplicity um, in understanding this stuff, I think. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I think that if you look at the financial system, particularly historically, the deck and the dice were very firmly loaded in favour of the financial institutions. You know, They wrote the policy documentation, they came up with the terminology, you know, they've made it inaccessible over time. And I'm not disputing some of the things that we're dealing with are complex concepts, but you know, I just think that you're seeing this new evolution of, of organisations willing to break those down and make money accessible. And, and you know, you have to look at some of the challenger banks in the UK to really realise that people like Monzo, people like Starling, you know, they're just talking to people like human beings and they're taking difficult concepts and making them simpler. And you just have to see the wave of people that are adopting those kind of tools, working with those kind of organisations, because they're just putting a much more friendly face on what is a very complex topic and like I said they're not doing it in a patronising way or in a dumbing down way but they are doing it in a way that kind of appeals to a much much wider audience. And so do you think there's something that um, HR teams can learn from that change in consumer behaviour if people are interacting with those apps in a very different way or even for the first time ever um, can we take some of that stuff into the workplace and learn about how that consumer behaviour might inform how we roll out financial wellbeing strategies in the workplace? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I have a huge degree of sympathy for certainly all of the chief people officers, HR directors, or award people that I speak to, um, because I think it's a hellishly complicated market where there's lots and lots of different providers. And I think the issue for me is when you look at all of those providers, it's they all do a little bit of it, but not all of it. And so you end up with this kind of plethora of, well, if I'm trying to cover even... 80% of the bases I feel like I need to, I'm going to need these 10, 20, 50, however many things it is, and I'm just going to confuse employees further. And so I think part of the issue in the market has been actually the market has created complexity. And so really, I, you know, I have a massive amount, as I said, of sympathy for those people, because when you're looking at trying to buy something to help your people, what do you do? You know, what content do you put together? Do you make your own? Do you use other people's? Where's it coming from? What's what's independent? Who's got a vested interest? Who's making money from where? You know, this kind of and I think what we've been what's happened to us, particularly since uh, the the financial crash, but but certainly has been happening over the last twenty odd years, is we've all become much more cynical about finance. We're all looking at who's trying, who's making what from where, right? And I think those organisations that are making money in a quite hidden and quiet way. I think I have been forced now to bring that to the surface and say, actually, you know, I think a lot of people respect that everyone needs to make money somewhere, but if you're honest and transparent about where that's being made, I'm much more likely to be on board with what you're trying to do because I can acknowledge that and I can either sign up for it or I can go and find something else to go and that's more interesting or that works better for me or that I believe in, in, in more personally. And I think that's a really good point. You know, even outside of the traditional world of kind of finance and financial services, 
you've seen some of these comparison engines. You've obviously been under attack from the likes of Martin Lewis, who are kind of saying, you know, enough is enough. You can't put the companies you own or you get the best commission from at the top of the list. Um, you know, you need to kind of show those things. And I think when those kind of things were exposed, that really affected consumers because I think they started to realise that even some of the brands they thought they could trust were misleading them, um, intentionally or otherwise. Um, that's clearly lots of the sentiment online. And I think, you know, we talked to Polly McKenzie and the demos report about trust in the DWP being really low. You know, trust in government is really low and, and has been and will probably continue to be through um, through Brexit and, and beyond for the next couple of years. And so there are very limited places for people to go, right? Mm -hmm. So if, the, if these traditional institutions where employees used to get help, the government um, and... Uh, yeah, and financial services. Then, who are they turning to? And as you mentioned, you know, their most trusted institution in their lives is the employer. So, in this kind of perfect storm of people really need help and support, and they really need to build that resilience, then there's one obvious place to go for sure. that, and that appears to be the workplace. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying it's the only place. You know, clearly there are, like I said, a number of institutions. I've named a few of them who are trying to do more of a job to help people. But I think there's a lot of logic in it being the employer. And I'm not just trying to load employers with more red tape or or, or kind of more to do. But I think it's, for me, it's one of the impacts and the outcomes of when it goes wrong for employees is most felt, I think, by the employer. Mm. Um, whether that's in productivity, concentration levels, you know, there are a whole raft of impacts that, that particularly the financial wellbeing piece has uh, on individual employees. Um, but you know, I'd be interested in, you know, from what you've seen from other people, um, I appreciate your interviewing me and I shouldn't do this. <laughs> right now, but I just, I'm fascinated as to, do you agree with that? I mean, you, you've obviously got everyone talking from all of these different kind of wellbeing routes. I think I'm sure people will be interested to hear what your view is in terms of the largest area. Yeah, I think we'll we'll cover some of this in a later episode. So the final the final final episode, episode twenty, myself and James Carrier will be discussing the themes that have kind of stood out, and you know, some of the stuff that's stood out already has been you know, especially in kind of financial well, actually financial well being and well being in general that confusion around the amount of providers. You know, we have in financial well being you have an industry that has appeared almost overnight which is now saturated with choice for HR award teams and that choice is leading to confusion and apathy which is leading to inaction because actually it feels like a lot of effort to go and kick the tires of 20 different financial well-being providers and work out which one of those are going to be best or what collection of those will be best for my organization um, and the same with well-being you know the, the well-being spectrum is really long you know we've covered things on this podcast from kind of neuroscience to art and learning and physical and mental health and financial well-being and so you know it's a it's a big problem to solve it changes it's very fluid it changes for each employee almost daily I guess and mm. and with a, such a large and diverse workforce you know the whole point of this podcast is to kind of say look there are lots of ways you can impact um, and some of those things you'll already be doing there'll be you know, we talked to Jeff McDonald about the fact that you have HR policies in place that will be making people feel worse at work. And so that whole well-being journey, I don't think, is as big as people think. And many of them have started it without even knowing. So I think starting to look at what you do now and what things you have in place now um, is a really good place for people to start. And so I think those themes have really come out that actually... People really want to do something about this and there seems to be you know from all the people I've spoken to a real desire that you know we found in our own research at Benefex with King's College London that 
you know, overwhelmingly, HR told us that dealing with well-being at work was just the right thing to do. They felt like they had a responsibility. Um, and that actually leads me quite nicely onto the, uh, the last question I wanted to ask you. And that was, um, you know, you are a uh, CEO of a business that employs 300 people all around the world. Um, that is growing really, 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 really fast. Um, and you are taking on the responsibility of all of those people and their well-being and the well-being of their families, you know, their children. So that's quite a big burden to, to, to carry for a CEO. So how, how do you manage that? And, and, how, <laughs> and, and, and I assume that does bother you. It does. It massively bothers me. It's one of those where I think that, um, you know, I think it's inherently one of my main responsibilities as CEO is both, you know, the people we hire, the welfare of those people, you know, right from a kind of rudimentary risk, health and safety perspective, but also how engaged they are, with what are we doing to kind of contribute to their, you know, betterment in terms of learning and intellectual well-being, but also, you know, how are we actually making sure they look after themselves and look after their health and well-being. And I think it's it's always really difficult, as a, particularly as a bit, you know, we've grown very quickly um, over the last kind of uh, six or seven years. And you kind of you've always got this tension between that desire to make sure um, that we're doing absolutely everything we can for our people um, and the tension that comes with, with kind of high growth because you know inevitably there we ask a lot of people and I think that it's my main job to make sure that you strike a really good balance within that that you, you listen to the tone of the organization as well kind of individually and wholesale and like every organization we've had our fair share of people who have had challenges and I think I, I like to say I, I try and pride it ourselves on just being really open about them and so you know, if you have a challenge if you have a struggle if you have a problem come and talk to us about it and we'll find the best way forward together it's not a you know oh you know, off you go out the door you're done for us it's really about working with that individual because you know, I, fun I, I fundamentally believe in people I believe in the good of people and I believe that people as I said earlier on in the podcast come to work to do a good job and they come to work to be engaged they want to be excited by what they're doing and i think you can do that regardless of your role i think that you can actually do that for people and so you know that do we get it right always 100 percent no uh, i don't know any organization that does but but for me i think that to hear any ceo say they don't care about the well-being of their people i don't think they're living in the current era i don't think they're living in an era where actually we can no longer kind of sweep it under the carpet and just ignore it we have to say do you know what this is a business challenge in the same way people's health is in the same way that their health and safety is in the same way that you know any other risk we're managing is you know every single individual will have challenges in life and for me a great employer is someone who is able and capable to support in as many of those as possible there is a limit to what everyone can do um, and to what every organization can do and that'll be different as well depending on the part of the market you're in how much money you've got all those kind of things but for me there's still a core principle of doing as much as is possible in your organization for your people and you're trying to make sure that day in day out you're thinking about what are the consequences of the decisions that you're making on either the pressure that you're putting on people or uh, the challenges that you're all facing together does that make sense it does absolutely and i think you know some of the criticisms you have you hear quite often of workplace financial well-being in particular you know that's obviously a strong theme throughout this episode um 
is, you know, could, can we justifiably deliver workplace financial well-being if we don't have basic things in place like paying people a fair wage? So does it start with stuff like that? You know, can you, you know, we, we will both have seen companies that want to de- deliver a well-being strategy and say they care and in many cases give a lot of lip service to well-being. But actually, you know, if you're offering all these tools and these kind of payroll landing and financial education and nudging tools and all this kind of stuff, but you don't pay people even a living wage, is that, is that a problem? Is that a real issue? I do think it's a real issue. I mean, I think... The UK has been progressive in terms of the living wage foundation work and the work to try and get to universal basic wage, certainly more progressive than some of the other countries that I visit. But I think inherently this is an expensive country to survive in. And I think I get to meet, as I said, all sorts of different people, not just you know CEOs and board directors. I get to meet lots and lots of people who are out and the employers we work with. And I think fascinating thing for me is that like I said we are an expensive country and so I have a huge amount of sympathy for you know those people who are at or near the living wage or certainly in some organizations at the minimum wage and how they have to struggle every single day multiple jobs to make ends meet and I think to me it feels like they shouldn't be an ignored population I feel like for too long we've just ignored that group on the basis that well that is what it is right and that's how the world works I just don't believe that's true and I think you know, we've got to do more to sustain universal income and to get to a place where, for me, I think that, uh, you know, we, we, we kind of make sure that the whole country prospers as a result. And, and do you think the financial wellbeing tools that are available in the market at the moment that are targeted specifically at the workplace, do they really make a difference? Because I guess you as CEO of Benefex, you've seen hundreds of our clients roll these kind of tools out and we've seen the impact and the take up and that kind of stuff and you know what we probably get a lot more insight than even the providers themselves because we get it across multiple providers and you know are we really seeing this stuff have an impact you know some of those people some of those CEOs and founders have been part of this podcast um, and you know is that stuff making a difference in people's lives I think Look, inherently, I think those those organisations are coming at it from the right place. They're trying to do a good job. I think inherently what you have is making change for people and helping them on their journeys when they may or may not realise they have a challenge, they may or may not realise there's a problem, or they may not may or may not be willing to acknowledge that is a difficult thing. And, and I think that, you know, we've seen a myriad of tools work in certain places and not work in others. Um, I think at the moment I find the market quite polarised. There's a lot of really good stuff at the kind of push the red button end and there's a lot of really good stuff at the kind of I've got lots of money, help me put it in the right places and look after it end. And in the middle, for what I would class as the vast majority, I I feel like we aren't quite there yet. I don't really think we're quite there at that kind of either helping people on the way or the point of need. I think most people engage with their finances particularly at point of need. So got something happening I need to go and sort that out now and I think a lot of those tools focus on getting people to change their behavior and think about budgeting or getting people to change their behavior and think about kind of better planning and specific events and you know I think gone are the days when you can just fire out an ISA email in April and think well, that's a great thing that you've yeah. just done you know in the build-up to the cutoff I think you've got we've got to see much more starting to happen in my opinion around how you help people at that point 
and then over time they might move towards budgeting but right now I need to solve this insurance I have to buy right now I've got this debt problem I need to solve right now I've got this thing that I've got to do and I'm forced to do but I don't have the money to do right now I need to move house you know right now I've just moved into this country how do I get a bank account those are real things that we're seeing time and time again I don't think the majority of people sit and go I'm going to sit down today and budget and plan for my finances. It'd be great for the country if they did, but I just don't think it's the way people think about money today. And so I think we've inherently got to break down some of the barriers, make it engaging and fun, be there at the point so they're making a decision, uh, or certainly thinking about making a decision about something that's key, and then over time help move them in the direction of managing their money better. But, but still, some of those people won't engage with that. And sure. so I think we just have to accept that you know, we, we can do as much as we possibly can, but people need to meet us. Maybe it's not halfway, but they at least need to come 30 or 40% of the way uh, to meet us as well. Um, so one final question from me. Um, what do you do personally that has the most positive impact on your own well-being? Gosh, uh, that's a big question. Um, how, do, how do you throw off the reins <laughs> of being a CEO? And I do a couple of things, actually, if I may, rather than just one. I think... Um, Time with my family, and my children particularly, and my wife, I think, um, is a huge release for me. Uh, I'm really lucky that I get to go home, and uh, for anyone who's in a similar boat, you kind of you open the door, and uh, life's very much a leveller uh, for all the things that you thought were, were big issues and concerns. So that, that's a huge one for me. Uh, I think the other thing I've done for a long time is I do take the time in the morning to, I go through a specific practice of goals for the day, um, uh, gratitude and uh, without sound, wanting to sound cliched I do go through some meditation as part of that I just find it helps set me up for the day I just find it's it's been something I've done now for nearly four years it just helps me think about the day and what's coming and then the last one is you know for anyone else who's in an environment where you're running a business or you know you're, you're responsible for whatever you're contracting on or you, you're in that kind of environment that we all are these days where it's kind of always on 24 7 I take two weeks a year uh, out of the organisation and I just go and think and spend some time it sounds like a bit of an indulgence but it actually helps me work out the rest of my year um, and it's something I learned early on that you can't really work on a business when you're in it every day okay. and just getting some distance from it uh, really really helps both my clarity of thought but also for me the well-being piece as well Matt Macriola thank you very much thank you Join the workplace wellbeing discussion online by tweeting your thoughts and questions to at World of Good Book. Thank you to my guests today and thank you for listening.